Good morning, everybody. All right, good. You can tell. It's going to be great. Come on, we're being videotaped for crying out loud. You know, this is like important. So welcome, everybody. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff and uh, super glad that you are joining us this morning. We are in the middle of this series. It's a great series about uh, the hope quotient. There's some books in the back. And basically, we're going to spend the next six or seven, eight weeks or so looking at this idea of how do we raise the level of hope in our lives? Because we believe that hope changes everything. The way in which you have hope kind of filters into every single area of your life. And so this morning, uh, we're going to unpack another aspect of that. Well, um, ever since um, Robin Williams died, I've had this fascination of just kind of going back over, re-watching his movies. I haven't quite gotten back to Mork and Mindy yet, but I have been watching all of his movies along the way. And uh, this, a couple weeks ago, came across Goodwill Hunting. Have you guys seen that movie? Yeah, it's incredible. And if, I wasn't, if there wasn't a vote today to vote whether or not they were going to think about considering me to be lead pastor, I was going to show you some clips from that. Um, but there's not even one clip without the effort in it. So we had to, we had to post, postpone that for later. But if you've ever seen this movie, or even if you haven't, I mean, you should go and rent this movie. It is an incredible movie through and through. It's, it's a story about uh, Will Hunting, who's played by Matt Damon, and he is the most brilliant and broken person ever to be seen on, portrayed in a movie. I mean, he is incredible, right? He is a savant. He has a, a photographic memory. Whatever he sees, he remembers. But he doesn't remember it. He can actually internalize it, and he's a great thinker. And at the same time, he's just incredibly broken. Um, he has all this abuse in his background. And, and the way the movie starts is, uh, you know, he's, he's moving along, and he's with this group of buddies in South Boston, and that's kind of his people. And he's a janitor at MIT, and this really impressive professor with scarves. You know, he puts up this this um, math equation on the board, and, and, and Will uh, Hunting goes and, and fits, solves this equation. But the deal is that, is that Matt Damon's character, Will Hunting, he doesn't really want to do anything with this knowledge, right? Like, because of his brokenness, his, ver- his version of himself is actually pretty small, and his version of his people are actually pretty small, and what he could do with his smarts is actually pretty small. But every now and then, like, I don't know about you, but if you, you kind of want to test out these things about you, like, am I really that smart? Can I really do that thing? Well, he puts it out there that he's actually really smart. And uh, this MIT professor tracks him down and realizes how brilliant Matt Damon's character is. He is so brilliant. He looks at him and says, you know what? You are so smart. You are so brilliant. You, you shouldn't just be a janitor at MIT. You should be, you know, cracking codes for the CIA. And, you know, you should be doing incredible things. And so he begins to help him process and help him come up with a larger purpose of his life and what he can do. But in the process, because he, he got to be part of this process because he got arrested, and a part of his parole was to meet with a therapist. And that's where uh, Robin Williams' character comes in. He's this therapist named Sean, and, and they, they begin to meet uh, week in and week out. And, uh, and as they meet, you, you start to get to unpack uh, Will Hunting's story, and you start realizing that for as smart as he is, for as brilliant as he is, he, uh, he's stunted. He's, he's kind of paralyzed in this tiny little world. And, uh, and what's interesting is as the movie progresses, he grows in hope. And he grows in an understanding of who he is as a person. And he begins to have this relationship with this girl, and he, but he's kind of like keeping her arm's length until he kind of is trying to figure out if he's going to love her and what he's going to do with his life. Well, the scene that I really wanted to show you, which I couldn't because I'm trying to get promoted here, is, uh, is the scene where, they, where Sean, uh, the therapist, meets with Will and, uh, and he has his whole case file. And, uh, and basically, all of Matt Damon's inner garbage, all the stuff that he's been trying to hide based on his friendships and his smarts, is exposed in a manila folder. Talks about him being abandoned by his parents, going from foster home to foster home, to being abused. Um, 
And it is just, it's heart-wrenching. And me, I'm not even the crier on staff, and I even felt a little emotional as I'm watching this thing. It's just a compelling scene. And, uh, and, the, and the climax of the whole scene is, is, is he hands this portfolio to Matt Damon and says, it's not your fault. Right, you remember that? And, and Matt Damon goes, oh, I know, I know, it's not my fault. And he says, no, you don't understand, it's not your fault. He says, I know, I know. And he's just like relentless. It is not your fault. It is not your fault. It is not your fault. And finally, you know, he starts like, don't mess with me, Sean. What are you doing? Like you're, he's like about to crack into this inner being of who he is until finally he just breaks down. It is not your fault. And they end up hugging and embracing and weeping. And that kind of breakthrough moment changes the whole trajectory for the rest of the movie. From that point on, he's willing to see himself not just as this victim, not as this unlovable person, but he's willing to kind of lean into hope, lean into maybe he could give his heart to this girl in the movie. Maybe he could do something more. In the end of the movie, you know, he has this crummy little car and it's heading uh, west to, to California. He says, I got to go see you about a girl. And it kind of leaves on this hopeful note, like, what's it going to be like? Like, you don't know. And um, it is just this incredible, incredible movie. And when I think about hope, when I think about raising hope, I just think about that story because so many of us, in a whole range of ways, are really brilliant in our own mind and really broken as well. We all kind of have these different things we bring to the table. And, uh, and what we choose to do with them, what we choose to deal with them and embrace them or hide them, kind of is going to determine what kind of people we're going to be. And unless we embrace hope, we're going to be paralyzed as these people. Now, I went to school, uh, when I went to college, I majored in history, not in psychology, but with the internet, in a couple hours, all of us can be psychologists. So those of you who got your MFT degrees, thank you, God bless you. But I went to Google and, uh, and came up with some things. So I want to be like, what is up, you know, with the psychology thing? Does this really work is what Sean was talking about? Does that work? And so I started Googling psychology and self-help and um, psychologically today. So now I'm a, a quasi-expert. But I came across this incredible website. And uh, I want to read you a couple quotes. This guy, William James, uh, who's big on the internet. I've never met him, but this is what he said. The greatest revolution in our generation is the discovery that human beings, by changing the inner attitudes of their minds, can change the outer aspects of their lives. Psychology in the last 50 years has totally changed to move to this place that what you understand about yourself dramatically impacts what you're going to end up doing with yourself. Like the way that you think, the way that you believe, the way that you think about yourself, the way that you think about your people, the way that you think about the gifts and skills you bring to the table, the ways in which you think about that will actually impact what you do with yourself. And he goes on to say, what you perceive is what you believe. Your personal perception, this guy awesome, it's so good. Sorry, man. Your, uh, your personal perception of reality is determined by the beliefs you hold. Now, this is where it gets interesting. This does not necessarily make them real, except for the fact that you believe that they are. Your beliefs create and dictate what your attitudes are. Your attitudes create and dictate how you respond. And in other words, they dictate your feelings. And your feelings largely determine how you behave. Isn't that amazing? Whatever we think about who we are actually impacts how we behave and the kind of lives we're going to live. And so when we think about our hope, when we think about what kind of lives are we going to have, then we have to answer this question. Our hope depends fundamentally on how we answer these questions. What do you believe about who you are? What do you believe about where you belong? And what do you believe about what you bring to the table? What do you believe about your purpose in the larger scheme of things? And what's interesting is all of us, 
we really look at a funhouse mirror and we look in the mirror, right? We, we, the way that we judge each other, the way that we judge ourselves, and we go and we go, oh, I'm smart, I'm valuable, I'm really important, I'm funny, I'm boring, I'm lonely, I'm fat, I have too many freckles, whatever your deal is, right? We look at ourselves in the mirror and, uh, and we kind of have this perception of how we view our world, of how we view ourselves, and that is going to filter into everything else, right? How we view ourselves, are we people who are worthy of respect? Are we worthy of value? Are we worthy Or are we not worthy? Are we basically like trash and we don't even have any sense of self-worth or value? Are we a victim or are we a champion? The way in which we answer those questions determines our whole life. So who, uh, what do we believe about who we are? What do you believe about where you belong? Who are your people? In the movie Good Will Hunting, Will Hunting, right? He had this group of four friends. Those were his people. He doesn't have a mom. He doesn't have a dad. Um, There's other people who tried to kind of come into his life. He had four people and that was it. Some people are like, man, that's pretty lucky. Some people are like, man, that's only four people. But whoever you end up seeing as your people, they are going to add to your sense of worth and your sense of value. They are going to impact your understanding of hope. In most people, it starts with their families. It trickles out to their friends. Um, there's different sorts of fraternities and organizations. There's like certain experiences that knit people together. Like, oh, we are, we are people, right? And so the, where you land, where you belong, is going to determine what kind of hope quotient you have. And lastly, what do you bring to the table? Are you someone who has actual gifts and talents? Are you brilliant? Are you smart? Um, Do you have these tasks that you can do that nobody else can do? And unfortunately for our culture, almost all of us are defined by what we can actually do. And so when that thing that we actually can do begins to go away or someone does it better, we get lost and we end up being really depressed. Um, a good friend of mine who uh, went to Chico State with my wife ended up doing campus ministry and ended up going to Stanford University to do campus ministry. And she's like, I'm a wildcat. What am I going to do at Stanford, you know? We, Chico State parties, you know, like, that's like, like what am I going to do at Stanford? And uh, what she noticed was people at Stanford have been the smartest people their entire lives. They are the top 1% of every school they've ever been a part of. They brought something to the table. They, they were smart, the smartest people in the room. And all of a sudden, they're not the smartest people in the room anymore. And what do they bring to the table? And a huge chunk of their population struggles with depression because they do not know what they bring to the table anymore. And we have to answer what we bring to the table. So our hope depends on how we answer these questions. What do you believe about who you are? What do you believe about where you belong? And what do you believe about what you bring to the table? Now, it's interesting, in the movie Goodwill Hunting, we see exactly that process happen as he began to realize that he is more than just a victim of abuse and could see himself as someone worthy of love and worthy to love. He was willing to expand his community. He was willing to expand the people he was around. And he was even willing to expand what kind of job he'd be willing to do. Um, And what's interesting, every self-help website I went to, so I'm an expert, at least for the last two weeks, but every self-help website, I mean, that's the thing. If you think about it, if you can stand in front of the mirror and simply change your view of yourself, you're going to feel more whole, right? If you start dressing in a way that makes you feel more comfortable, if you stand in front of the mirror and go, man, you are handsome. You bring something to the table. Whatever that thing is, you're going to actually live into it. That's what all self-help things are telling me. That's what, and, it's, and it works. I mean, I've been in therapy a couple of years and it, it works. It's like it really does work. So now here's the trippy part. I think that works because all of truth is God's truth. And God designed us to create a unique um, person, a unique value in our personhood, a unique community for us to belong to, and a unique purpose. And if an echo works really well, if an echo can actually change your life, how much more can a real life encounter with God 
who defines those things for us change our lives. Now, what's interesting is, for most of us, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you actually stood in front of the mirror and said, you are handsome, you are valuable. You haven't because you're whole. But I mean, I tried that stuff and said, that's what I should do. And what's interesting is, no matter how much you do that, you kind of know in the back of your mind that you're a faker. You know that this doesn't really work. You know that it's just you standing in front of a mirror going, you are handsome. And, uh, and you've seen this happen back, uh, especially when American Idol first came out. Do you remember that? They would spend like six weeks, and you got to just mock all these people from all over America who'd stand in front, and they would sing their guts out, and they would be awful. They'd do a couple good people, but most of them would be awful. And you just know as you've watched these stories, I mean, I did this for, for research. That's why I watched it so much. But as I was watching these season after season, the overwhelming picture you get is that these people have been told their entire lives that they are handsome and they are beautiful, and they are amazing singers. And they walked up the stage, and they sang their guts out, and you listen to them, and are like, oh! And you laugh at them, and you mock them, and you're like, how do you not know that you're not a good singer? Because the reverse is true, right? Their whole life, they've been told this falsehood. Their whole life, their over-eager mom's like, you're amazing, you're a great singer. And then when you're like forced to meet against reality, you're like, oh, just kidding, I'm not, right? And, it's, and, and so there's this thing, we can't just rely on self-help. We can't just go, you're smart, and you're handsome, because there's this what if we're not, right? There's this over, there's this scary, what if we're not? And so the, the reality is, is there's the real power comes when somebody else affirms that, right? When somebody else affirms your value, when, when you have a real parent see you and love you and express joy and contentment and, and you know, it was so proud of you. When a parent does that, it automatically raises a kid's self-esteem. When a dad does that, it exponentially raises a kid's self-esteem because the things that they're trying to sort out, is this real or not real? All of a sudden to have your parent go, yes, that is true. You are valuable. You are worthy. You belong to our family and you have great things in your future. When, when a parent does that, and especially a dad does that, it's like affirmation. They're not just standing in front of a mirror to do it. When you actually have a, a friend say, man, you're an awesome friend and I love you and you're part of our community. And we love that. When a friend does that, when a boss sees that you've done something and affirms you for that, right, it, it raises our self-esteem. And sometimes we have to just pay a therapist to just tell us that we're normal, like what a human being is all about. It, but we still, oh, we're paying you. But it's still another human that's like telling us this stuff. And it works. But like I said, that's the echo. If the echo works, how much more is it going to work if we actually get our head around the Word of God? So this idea of hope changes everything. And this morning we look at the idea, the way that we raise our hope quotient is that we raise our expectations. And the ways that we raise our expectations is by we having a true and proper view of who we are, of where we belong, and what we bring to the table. Now the definition of hope that we're using is this, that hope is a life lived in increasing increasingly confident expectation that God's promises are true and that he will act in our lives and in our world. Let me read that again. Hope is a life lived in increasingly confident expectation that God's promises are true and that he will act in our lives and in our world. Hope is getting that God's promises are true and that's actually going to matter and impact us personally and in our lives. So this morning, the passage of Scripture we're going to look at is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to there, and we're going to spend this morning kind of unpacking that a little bit. Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10 says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves, but it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So, this morning, if we're going to expand our hope, if we're going to grow our hope, then the reality is, is that hope grows by expanding our understanding of these three things. Your person, your peeps, and your purpose. I had to use peace because that was important. But the first thing says that you have been saved by grace. Not by works. Not so anyone can boast. It is a free gift of God. You have been saved by grace. And what's interesting is the very starting point is that you are in need of saving. You are in need of grace. It'd be cool if the starting point was you are handsome and smart and bring things to the table. I mean, that's true, sort of. But the starting point is that you are in need of grace. And what's interesting is all of us, if we're actually quiet long enough in the quietness of our own bed at night before we put our earbuds in and try to distract ourselves even longer, if we are quiet long enough, we have this sinking feeling that if somebody knew me, the real me, the me that is behind all the things I present, the real me, the real anxieties, the real fears, the real darkness, the real deepest darkness, if somebody knew that about me, they would not want to be my friend. They would not want me to be their lead pastor, right? They would not want me around. And I think if we're honest, if we're quiet long enough, there is this sinking suspicion that that is true. And how cool that scripture calls it straight out. You are in need of grace. You don't need to pretend anymore. You don't need to try to prove to me or to somebody else that you are so great and you have it all together. How freeing is that? It is so freeing. Right now, I'm so nervous. There's cameras on me like crazy. I'm sweating through my shirt. It is so embarrassing. I cannot raise my hands because I have huge sweat pits. Right? You see it. I tried for half the service to not show it, but you see it. So if I just own it, I'm saved by grace. We do that in every area of our life. Okay, you can stop laughing now. It's starting to hurt. But every time we have offered ourselves to people, which we rarely ever do, but think of the times when we've often, I mean, when we've offered ourselves in genuine humility to somebody else. This is really who I am. This is really what I'm scared of. This is really how I'm struggling. I don't know about you, but every time that I've ever actually shared those things out of a stance of humility and vulnerability, I've actually been received. Now, the times I do it out of self-righteousness doesn't work out so well, but the times that I've done it out of humility, I've been received. And even though I'm starting to get a couple more examples and experiences in my life of, of being seen and being known, I still don't want to do that. But th- this passage starts out with, it is by grace in which you are saved. There is no space for self-righteousness in the kingdom of God. Self-righteousness is you've got it all figured out. You don't need grace anymore because you've now become acceptable. Well, you've never are going to be acceptable. If you think you've become acceptable, then you've missed it. God is continually wanting to shape us and refine us. And our stance towards him is you are God, you are the king, and yet you see me, you love me, and you save me. He doesn't save us out of pity. He saved us because he loves us and we have value. So if you want to expand your hope, hope grows by expanding your person and by understanding that you are seen by God, you are loved by God. All those deepest, darkest demons that you're trying so hard to lock down, God already knows. He sees all of that and he loves you. 
including that, not even despite of that. It's who you are, and he loves all of you. Now, it goes on to say, that, um, it's not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. I love this, that we are God's handiwork. We are not these throwaways, that we are his masterpiece. Anyone who's actually spent time and worked on something that is beautiful and worthy to be shown off, it is worthy to be shown off, right? If you found something that was worthy to be shown off and you put it in your garage, it's a, it's a crime. We are God's handiwork. We deserve to be shown off to the whole world. We have value. I mean, even my daughter, when she was learning how to draw some stuff, I mean, it wasn't that great, but it was valuable to me, and I was willing to put it on my fridge, right? Because it is her work, and I'm so proud of her and her work. And when she was like three and four, it was amazing. It still looks the same at seven, so we don't put those up on our fridge anymore. But, right, but, but we're proud of those handiworks. We display them. Now, here's what's kind of a trip. In the self-help world, you are smart, you are handsome, you bring great things to the table, you are valuable, and you, bring God, you um, are God's handiwork, Right? But here's what's interesting about this passage of Scripture. It doesn't say that you are God's handiwork. It doesn't say that you are God's masterpiece. It says that we are God's handiwork, that we are God's masterpiece. So our value doesn't just come that God sees me and God knows me and that God loves me, but our value is also that we are connected to, to each other. I mean, think about this. God became a human in the form of Jesus Christ, died on the cross for our sins. Super great. But, but here's what's even more trippy. God like, is picking you and me to be identified with him. Not just as Christians, but we together are the body of Christ. We together are the body of Christ. We are God's partners in ministry. We are his ambassadors. Together, we have value. We, we have this, this incredible calling. And what's amazing is, is that... Um, that are, we don't just sit next to each other. All the good clubs of the world who just sit together and gather, they actually don't have a lot of value. It's great when we have lunch together, but the great, the great clubs of the world who do, what they do is they do things together. And when they do things together, there's this added sense of purpose and value. And Romans 12 says that we are the body of Christ and that we belong to each other. We don't just sit next to each other. We don't just uh, hang out with each other and pass each other in the halls. We don't just do a small group together, but we actually belong to each other. When one of us mourns, we mourn with them. When one of us celebrates, we celebrate with them. We belong to each other. We don't just get to go, oh, I don't need our pinky. You don't need your kidney. You don't need, we don't get to pick and choose which parts are valuable or not valuable. The very fact that you are connected to Christ means you're a part of the body of Christ and we belong to each other. Now, the very fact that we are part of Merton Covenant Church, even if you're not sold in this whole Christianity thing, but you are sorting it out and you're trying to figure out, you are part of Merton Covenant Church, and at least from the staff and leadership team, we see that we belong to you and you belong to us. You are not just people who sit in the chairs and walk in and out nameless and faceless, but you belong to us. You are our people. It is not just these tiny little cliques and clusters that we, that we walk in and do life with. We are part of a gigantic movement. You're not absorbed into the masses. You are a valuable and important part of the body of Christ. So not just that you are a masterpiece, but we are a masterpiece. And it ends with this. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God prepared in advance for us to do. The good works that we are to do are to be both individual and collective. God has something for us to do at Marin, in, through Marin Covenant Church. 
You have very unique gifts and talents and personalities and strengths that God wants to leverage for his kingdom. God is not saying you become a Christian, you come to Mary Covenant Church, and then you need to be like somebody else. Pick your favorite person. Oh, if I can just be like them, then I'm going to be great. No, you need to be the fullest, most, most redeemed version of you, your unique personality, your unique, unique gifts and strengths. And when you can figure those things out and leverage them for the kingdom of God, then we are getting after all that God has for us. And our hope grows when we expand the version of our purpose and our peeps and our, our person peeps and purpose. And what's interesting is in the movie Goodwill Hunting, totally it's not a Christian movie in the slice, it's a good movie about therapy, but it's an echo and the echo works. Right? Will Hunting, when he gets a bigger sense of who he is, a more healthy sense of who he is, he gets to expand his community. And when he understands when he's loved by his community, he gets to embrace his unique gifts and talents, and he's going to get after something more than just, uh, you know, tearing down, doing demolition with his buddies. He's, you know, he's going to go and try this new thing out. And that's an echo. And what would it be like for us if we did that? Well, I love this passage in Luke chapter 5. It's the calling of Levi. So, and Levi is uh, another name for Matthew. You know, Matthew is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, in John, Matthew wrote the first gospel in the New Testament, and he was a tax collector. He was a tax collector, and who knows what sort of family history he came from? Who knows? Um, who, whatever got him to that point, it ends with him being a tax collector, despised by the Romans because he's Jewish, despised by the Jews because he's taking money for the Romans. He was a total misfit and outcast in his context. He, um, right, and so he was this totally other person, hated and despised by everyone around him. And this is what happens when Jesus encounters him. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And I love this picture because this is all of us. We, in our own way, are tax collectors. Our lives, for good or for ill, have, have brought us to this place. We use our gifts and our talents to the best of our abilities. We try to make a, li a life and are living for ourselves, and we just kind of grind it out. Now, in this context, what Levi was doing was, a, was despicable, and he knew that he was on the bottom of, the, of all the rungs. And I think if we're honest, we're, in, we're not quite sure where we fit. But all of us are in this booth doing what we think we should be doing. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene, and he sees us. He sees Levi and says, Levi, leave this life and come and follow me. And he leaves his life behind, and he goes and follows Jesus. And for me, I've always wrestled with the calling of the disciples because he just left his job. He left his people. I'm like, I don't want to leave my job. I don't want to leave my people. And what I love is that there's this process. He left his job, and then he goes and throws a party. He doesn't just go, that's what I love about people who just come to faith, who just figure out, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus. They don't go, oh, here's my Christian friends. Here's my non-Christian friends. Here's my job. Here's my church. And we just keep them all separate. Matthew, he puts them all together. He throws this huge party for all of his friends, invite Jesus and his disciples, and they have this great time together. He brings all of who he is. He expands his people because he's now valued by these people. And he now is valued because of this larger group of people. And then what I love is that Jesus took these special and unique gifts that Levi had. I mean, I don't know, whatever it takes to be a tax collector, I don't have any of those. And mostly when it comes to finances and being detail-oriented and documenting things, 
That's not me. That was Levi. And God takes Levi, takes him, who he actually is, with his gifts, with his talents, and Levi ends up writing the first gospel in the New Testament. The gospel that actually points back to all the prophecies in the Old Testament. It's an incredible, incredible document that's read throughout colleges, college literature classes, and Christian and non-Christian colleges alike. That's what he did. His piece of the pie, his purpose that God used and transformed and redeemed. And simply, that is all of our call. We are sitting in our tax booth, and Jesus comes by and simply wants to change how we understand ourselves. He wants to expand our people and where we belong, and he wants to expand our purpose. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? And because your life is totally different than mine and all the things I've had to wrestle with over this week figuring out are mine, but I wanted to give you some space. We're going to spend just a few minutes to be quiet. Because we have to come to terms with some of these things. Because in order to expand our hope and to live in this reality, we must come to terms with our brokenness and embrace God's grace. If we think we're awesome and don't need anything or anyone, then we've missed this whole Christian thing. That thing in you that's not sure if you're worthy or if anyone's going to love you because of your stuff, that's a real thing. There's real deep, dark awfulness. But Jesus loves us. He sees us. He forgives us. While we were sinners, he died for us. And we, if we're going to move anywhere in this journey, we have to come to terms with our brokenness and embrace his healing and his grace. We have to come to terms with our alienation. We so don't want to be in contact with anybody. We think being on Facebook and liking things here and there is good enough. And we have two friends and that's good enough. And it is not good enough. God is inviting us to be not just in community, but to be part of his very body, to belong to people, to not just use each other for services and goods, but to actually belong to one another. So we must come to terms with our alienation and embrace this new family. And some of you have been Christians a long time and you're like, oh, Jesus loves me and that's great. And I got a small group and that's great. And you might need to come to terms that God has given you very unique gifts and strengths and abilities. But those are not just for you. They're not just to expand your wealth or your influence. They are to be leveraged for the kingdom of God. God doesn't want to take you out of what you're doing. He wants to redeem what you're doing and use it for his goodness and for his purpose and for his kingdom. And so this might be time for you to wrestle with how do you take the unique person, the unique gifts and talents that God's given you, and how do you leverage those for the kingdom of God? So we're going to spend a little bit of time just being quiet, just reflecting, letting you make space to deal with whatever you need to deal with God. I encourage you to, so that we can come to terms with our brokenness and embrace his grace, with our alienation and embrace our family and our strength so that we can use it for the kingdom of God. Let's spend a little time praying.